If you all have your Bibles, please open them up to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 today. George Washington's 100th birthday was approaching, and Congress had decided they wanted to do something really special for his day, and the interest was just building and the momentum of this great American hero and and the first president of the United States. And so Horatio Greenaw was selected and and awarded a commission of $5,000 to create a full-scale sculpture of George Washington for the United States Capitol Rotunda that they would put uh, within that that place. Over the next seven years, Greenaw spent his time in Florence, Italy, working with marble and sculpting his great masterpiece that he was going to bring to America. This enormous 20-ton marble sculpture of George Washington was his accomplishment at that time. And uh, a little bit different this was because George Washington is draped in a toga and his chest was exposed and his right hand was stretching skyward with his left arm extending a sword, offering the hilt of that sword, signifying his uh, surrendering the military uh, power to the, at the close of the revolution. A little bit different sculpture than they were anticipating. But because of its weight, as it was leaving Italy, the longshoremen, as they were putting it on the ship to send to America, the ropes snapped and broke, and Washington went into the drink. And he got stuck in the mud. Well, the United States had to send a naval battleship over to get him, (laughs) to bring him out, and to take him to New York Harbor. Once they got there, they discovered that the railroad tunnels in New York and some other places were too small for this massive statue on a train to go through. So they had to figure another way to get him to Washington, D.C. So they decided they would send him down around Florida and bring him back up through New Orleans and up through the waterway system and the roadways where there were no tunnels that they would get him to D.C., The initial $5,000 expense now is $26,000 by the time he actually makes it there. So he's finally brought to the Capitol in 1841, but it wasn't until 1843 on George's 100th birthday that the statue was presented with all the pomp and circumstance that they could offer. The naval band is playing and all the the lawmakers are giving their orations and eloquence and waxing and, and all that goes with it. And when all of a sudden the veil was lifted, they found George Washington looking like a Roman senator. The people were aghast. Some found it humorous. Some were extremely offended. And Washington, D.C. was in an uproar. Unfortunately, Greenaw had pushed the European style of classicism to its limits that were a little bit beyond the American taste. So after weeks of debate over this whole debacle, Congress decided to build a wooden shed for an additional $1,600 in which they would hide the statue in. (laughs) 
By 1908, the shed had become so weathered and so beaten, they knew they needed to do something about this. And so they began, as Washington normally does, debating things and what they're going to do. Eventually, Congress appropriated $5,000 to tear the shed down and to haul this semi-naked George Washington over to, in the dead of night, by the way, to the Smithsonian Institute, where he would be placed hidden back there with a bunch of old printing presses. Finally, however, in 1964, he was brought out of hiding and put on a beautiful pedestal. In the New Testament, Jesus makes it very plain for us to understand. It makes it very clear that we who profess to know Him as Savior, we are expected to, how shall we say, impact our world. And we are expected to make an indelible oppression on it. In Matthew chapter 5, we come to the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, which we started last week. And Jesus begins his teaching by laying out the characteristics of what a kingdom worker is supposed to be like. If you're part of the kingdom of, of God, this is how you're supposed to live. Now here in verses 13 through 16, he gives a very powerful description of of the kind of people who make up this kingdom. And in this section we see the kind of influence and impact we're supposed to have on the society in which we live. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, chapter 5 verses 13 through 16. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do you light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In our passage of Scripture this morning, we find that Jesus is using two metaphors to describe those who are His disciples. And, and he, he wants us to understand that, that the kind of influence that we should have in this world, one, He says, is salt, and the other is light. So let's begin with, you are the salt of the earth. Find it there in verse 13. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So, in order to better understand what Jesus is saying here in Matthew, really, you had to be Jewish to kind of get it. We kind of get a little bit of the, the understanding here. But to, to live in that culture in that day and age, there was something unique and different about the salt in which they used. Now Matthew, he's writing this book, this letter, this biography of Jesus to the Jewish people. And so they would understand what he's saying here a little bit more. Luke gives us a, a little bit of more of a twist on what the aspect of salt is. And so in Luke chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, Luke tells us this, kind of quoting Jesus in the same sense. He says, salt is good, 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It's no longer good, it's no longer use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I know a lot of preachers, a lot of teachers probably take this aspect of the salt and they want to talk to us about table salt and how we use it to, to enhance our foods and to preserve and those things. And salt does all those wonderful things. But when we hear that little bit more of how Luke records this message, he throws in something a little bit different. He throws in the manure. All right? And so it changes our understanding somewhat. I think the key word here that we're looking at is this word earth. Salt of the earth. And that's what Jesus tells us. So the Jewish people would understand this metaphor a little bit different because it was customary in Israel. And boy, I'd love to take some of you there with me. I'm going again next year. But down at the Dead Sea, you see salt. And it's, it's everywhere because of, of the mineral composites and how the sea is, is evaporating and, and the minerals that build there. And so they would go down to the sea and they would scrape up a lot of this salt from the Dead Sea. And they would use it for two things primarily. We know that, that salt has a very high potassium rate in it here at the Dead Sea, but it doesn't have much sodium, which is what we would use on our food. All right? And a gardener knows that a good fertilizer can came a good mix of three different uh, things, phosphate, nitrate, and sodium. Or not sodium, but, but potassium. So the Jewish people would go to the sea, and they would collect the salt, and they would use it to fertilize their soil. And they still do that today, uh, very rich in minerals. The second thing that they would use the salt for was to put on the manure pile on their human waste. So they'd have the place out back where everybody would go, and then they would have there the salt they would use as a disinfectant to spray on it and to cover it as it would go about, and that way things would just disappear eventually. We know that salt promotes good things when you want to grow something. We also know that salt prohibits bad things that you don't want to keep around. So we look at the salt that Jesus is talking about here, and he says that you are the salt of the earth. In other words, he's saying that you are supposed to stop the bad things that are happening in the world around you. You are supposed to promote the things that are good and grow them in our world. Even if he were speaking about table salt, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that it, it is going to change things and make things better for us, right? It, it, it allows us to, to flavor things, and, and you've, you've, you've all been there, and some will say, well, does that have enough salt on it? Well, you can never have enough salt, right? So people always put more salt because it, it seasons it and flavors it, and we use it to preserve things. So it could even be that. But as a fertilizer or as a disinfectant, you're going to need a considerable amount of salt, not just a little bit to season. You need quite a bit. And the concept brings to us to this understanding. We need quite a few more people in this kingdom of God who are going to impact this world and change it. Now we know society has proven over and over again about 5 to 10% of the people in any society can eventually change that society's culture. 
Did you hear me? Five to ten percent of the people in any society can eventually change that society's culture if they are persistent in what they do. So, as a church, we need to look at how we can impact the society in which we live. And we may say, we're becoming outnumbered. It doesn't take many of us to do this. Matter of fact, when our nation began, they're estimating that about 10% of the people in America were actively attending church. And yet when you look at our laws and our Constitution and you see the impact of faith that made this nation great. Well, what is saltiness? Remember we learned last week as we read through the Beatitudes that the, the world doesn't like our saltiness, right? It doesn't like the way we're different than them. Saltiness is equivalent to godliness and behavior that is holy and righteous. And just as Jesus laid out the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at, he gave us eight character traits in which we should have, from the poor in spirit all the way to those who are persecuted because of their righteousness. And if we're going to be salty, back in verse 11, it's certainly going to happen, where, where Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and, and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. If you're going to live like me, People aren't going to like you because you're going to show them where they're missing the mark. So when you decide to be salty, you really have to have faith to believe that your reward is in heaven because you're not going to get it here on earth. So how does salt lose its saltiness? Well, strictly speaking, salt can't lose its saltiness. Matter of fact, it's a pretty stable compound that it takes a lot to, 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 to change it. It's very resistant to nearly every attack that you might have on it. Nevertheless, it can become contaminated by being mixed with other impurities, and then the salt becomes useless. It becomes a waste. Christians, we're supposed to be salt in this world. We're supposed to be that which changes and impacts our society. However, if Christians become assimilated to non-Christian ideals, and we take on the character traits of the sinfulness of this world, even though we still believe in God and we love Jesus, if we don't look different than people in this world, we've lost our effectiveness. Once again, salt loses its saltiness by being adulterated with other substances. Now, let's go back to the people in Jesus' day. When they would go down to the Dead Sea and they would collect the salt from the Dead Sea, they would gather it, and, and, and sometimes sand would get mixed in with it. And so, if they got too much sand, that salt was not really going to be useful for anything. And so, what they would then is they would just throw it out on the pathways, and they would use it to make sure it just get killed whatever was trying to grow there. And they would trample upon it with their feet. That was the only thing that it was useful for, is just being walked on. That's why it's so important for Christians to be set apart from the world. You see, when we allow the things of this world to infiltrate our heart and get mixed in with the things of God, then we lose our saltiness 
And we do not have as much of an impact in this world as God wants us to have. David Pawson said it this way. He said, the church, the lifeboat, should be in the sea. But when the sea gets into the lifeboat, you're in trouble. We are to be in this world, but we're not to be of it. We've got to look different. We've got to act different. We've got to be different than what this world says we should look like and live like. Christ has called us to a higher standard, and that's how we should live. It's not what we don't have enough salt, but the salt we do have is losing its saltiness very rapidly. And we're losing it by allowing society to creep into the church. We're called to be normal. We're not called to be normal. We are called to be different. And we should be leading our society rather than letting it lead us. You see, church, it's time that we speak up for godliness in the world in which we live because they don't know the benefits of it yet. Now, this next metaphor is this. He says, you are the light of the world. Let's look at verses 14, 15, and 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Who's in heaven. Now, we know that light has its negative as well as its positive impacts. I mean, when I'm in the middle of the night and somebody turns on the light, bright, and you open your eyes, that does not feel very comfortable. I mean, it, it, it's intrusive in my, my dark world in which I'm sleeping in, right? And, and so it, it, it exposes things as well. And sometimes we don't want people to see what we're doing in life. So it has its negative, which is exposed to bad things or to show people for who they are and what they're doing. The positive part of light is it, it, it exhibits a better way for you to walk and for you to live so you don't get hurt and you don't stumble. And neither way really will make you popular. Now here in Matthew 5.14, Jesus said, You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now he was speaking this sermon on the mountain. He's on the northern side, on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And the mountain range is like a bowl. So the mountains come around the sea. And as he's there, he's pointing out the city of Magdala, which is down just to the east of that area, or the west of that area, and it's a city that uses a lot of salt in its preservation and its work and the things that it does there around the sea. And then up on the hillside in the Golan Heights, there's another place called Hippos, which is a Roman city. It was one of the, the ten cities of the Decapolis, and so it was, it was a powerful city. And up on the hill, it was always lit at night. And so from anywhere around the sea, you could, you could recognize where Hippos was because it was always lit at night. And so he's saying, look here, guys. 
you're supposed to be the salt of the earth. You're supposed to be making an impact just as much as Magdala and their, their trade system is making an impact down here. And you're supposed to be like that city over here on this hill that is always visible even at night. Nobody can hide that city. It's there. Let your light shine. So we go over to John chapter 8, verse 12, and Jesus speaks of himself as the light of the world. I thought he just said that we're the light of the world. He did. Being the light of the world is the only two areas in which Jesus identifies himself as the same aspects as those who are his disciples. He didn't say, I'm the salt of the earth. He said, no, you're the salt of the earth. But we're both to be the light of the world. So in John 8, he said, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, trying to figure out what Jesus is saying here, you have to look at the context in which he's speaking there in John chapter 8. Story has been building, and Jesus is there in the community, and, and a bunch of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they have just come up to him dragging a woman that they caught in the act of adultery. And they throw her at his feet, and they say, we caught her. She should be stoned. Is not that what the law says, that if she's caught in this, she should be stoned? What do you say? Well, as the story goes, they're telling him that, that the law of Moses demands this. But there's also a conflict if they immediately go out and kill this woman because they no longer have the authority to do that because now they're under Roman authority. So the Jewish people can't just, just do something on their own. But Jesus takes us beyond even that. He gets down into the ground and he starts writing in the dust of the, of the earth some words. Now we don't know what he wrote and there have been people who have had speculation all through the years of what he may have written. But as he's writing something in the ground one by one, these men who have come in accusation against this woman, from the older to the younger, they start leaving. They start just putting their stones down and walking away. Jesus then looks to the woman. Before he looks to her, he, he mentions this to them in John 8, 7. As they continued to ask him what they should do, he stood up then and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Before long, everybody's gone. And he lifts her up, and he just doesn't say, You're safe, go on, go home. He makes a statement to her in that passage of Scripture. Because he, he identifies, he recognized she probably was caught doing what they had accused her of. And knowing that what they had accused her of, she probably should have been stoned. But he says to her, go, and from now on, sin no more. You've got to stop living this lifestyle. Sometimes I wonder if we would have been that individual drug before him that day because of our sins and how we should be punished because of the things that we have done. And he would tell us the same thing. Go, and from now on, sin no more. 
see, this is why we're supposed to be different. But if we live as the same as people in this world live, and there's no difference between us and between them, how are we going to show the light in this world? If you took a walk down a path at night, it's kind of hard to see where you're going without a light. And you might trip and you might stumble, you, you might bump into things. But the same thing goes for us as how we live in this society in which we live, in this world which is dark with sin. And if the church and the world look the same, and no one is shining a light to lead the way, then the only problem we have is we are all going to stumble and fall. So the only action that we have to do is to put ourselves, Jesus says, as a lampstand on a table so that we can light up the whole house for everybody to see. Our light is not just for us. It's for everyone else around us so that they can see what has been exposed from the darkness. Matthew 5, 15 and 16 says, People do not light a lamp or put it under a basket. You don't do that. That's foolish. You light a lamp and you put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. And then he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works. And because they recognize the things that you are doing that are godly, what are they going to do? They're going to give the glory and the praise to God, not to you, because they recognize you are who you are because of Christ in you. But if you hide your light, then it's no use to anyone else. And we're to be seen for having a higher standard of living, not, not to, uh, a material, but a moral standard of living. All right? But Jesus goes on, after he makes these statements, and he's going to begin to talk about the lifestyle of a Christian. He's going to talk about how we are supposed to live. Let's just kind of briefly look at some of the topics that's going to, that we're going to dig into as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to talk about murder and how it begins in the heart. He's going to talk about adultery and how that begins in the heart. He's going to speak about marriage and how it's sacred and it's binding and it's to last for our lives to the end. He wants to talk about our enemies and how we are supposed to love them. He'll speak to us about storing up our treasures, not treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. He wants to talk to us about when we want to get his attention in a relationship because of something that's on our heart and we begin to fast that people don't need to know that we're fasting but just God should know that we're fasting. He wants us to understand that you can't serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. You're going to hate one and you're going to love the other and, and, and we know which one's going to win when we got two, don't we? He wants us to understand that we don't have to worry about things, about life, about what we're going to eat or drink or what we're going to wear because He's going to provide for us. He's going to talk to us about when we, when we seek Him out, we need to keep on asking, we need to keep on seeking and keep on knocking because eventually He's going to respond. He's going to tell us that the way to heaven is a very narrow way. 
And not many people want to walk that path. He will tell us that we'll be able to identify and know the people based upon their fruit, which is their character, whether they are of God or not. And he wants us to also understand that we're supposed to build our life or our house on a rock, which really is Christ, because that is the best foundation. Now, some of those are going to be very tough topics. And it's not natural for anyone to live like it. I mean, it's supernatural. That's why Jesus says you need to let people see how you live. So let your light shine. Not just so that you can see them, but so they can see you. That's different. You see, Jesus set the moral standards higher than anybody else. But then he promised he would help us to fulfill those by giving us his spirit to live within us, to be our guide and our counselor. The problem is we have churches in America today who are trying to lower the standards for life. And they're wanting the church to meet the people where they are so we're the same. But that's not what Christ calls us to do. Jesus never compromised morality. Matter of fact, he raised the bar. And lowering the bar is not equivalent to being salt and light in this world. Jesus is quite clear that being the light is going to be a very unpopular thing. And he went on to say that I am the light of the world, and because I am... You hate me and you want to kill me. And that's exactly what they did. Because he was exposing things in this world. He knew that being the light was a very costly, stand, a costly thing. And standing for what you know to be right and true can be very painful, and very unpopular. Yet it is what this world needs in the darkness of sin. It needs light. Salt and light are not what you do, it is who you are. And when you're in direct contact with the world, they need salt and light. But we need a certain amount for it to work, don't we? Therefore, it is imperative that we share our faith so that there can be more salty people in this world to light it up with faith. So if Jesus is telling you that you really are the salt of the earth, he's also telling you that you're the light of the world. Now those are very two unpopular things, but in order to be a disciple of Jesus, those things are a necessity. John R. W. Stott, in his commentary that he has written on this Sermon on the Mount, he says this, The world is evidently a dark place with little or no light of its own, since an eternal source of light is needed to illuminate it. The world also manifests a constant tendency to deteriorate. The notion is not that the world is tasteless and that Christians can make it taste insipid or a little less insipid, but that it is putrefying. It cannot stop itself from going bad. He says, only salt introduced from the outside can do this. The church, on the other hand, 
is set in the world with a double role, as salt to arrest, or at least to, to hinder the process of social decay, and as light to dispel the darkness. So as with salt, so also with light. The, the affirmation is followed by some kind of condition. He says, let your light shine. What? Shine before men. People need to see that we're different. People need to see that we're living for Christ. All right? And he says, if salt can lose its saltiness, the light can become darkness. We're not to be like a town that is nestled in the valley, surrounded by the hillsides and the mountains, so nobody knows it's back in there. We're supposed to be like that city on a hill with the light that is out there so that everybody recognizes it's there, and it cannot be hidden. People should know that you are a Christian everywhere you go. You shouldn't hide that. Years ago, a train company had employed people to stand at the crossing sections where the roads were and the train would go. And so they would hire men to, to stand there. When a train was approaching, they would know the time it was coming. They would get out there, and they would normally, even at nighttime, take themselves a lantern, and they would warn oncoming traffic that a train was coming. Well, one night, a car went through that stop area, and the train hit it and ran over the car. The individual lived, but there were some serious problems as a result. Well, court ensued as a result of all that. You know, lawyers would get involved. So they had called before the, the court that day, the fellow who was there with his lantern. And, and the, the prosecuting attorney just grilled him and grilled him and grilled him. And his testimony never changed. He continued to say, I stood there and I waved my lantern continuously trying to get them to stop. The court was dismissed about it. The next day, the president of the, of the railroad came and they found Tom, the lantern fellow. And he told him, he said, it was very, very wonderfully, did very wonderful yesterday. He says, I was afraid first that you might waver and then your story might change. But Tom's response was this, no, sir, but I was afraid that the lawyer was going to ask me if I had lit my lantern. Hmm. You see, we may be in the crossroads for people's salvation today. They're lost in this world, and they're headed for a collision. But if your lantern is not lit, you're going to do no good. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Otherwise, well, let me wrap this up with a story. A story that I read about little Annie. A number of years ago in a mental institution, Tewksbury, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, a young girl named little Annie was locked up in what they referred to as the, the dungeon there at Tewksbury. 
You see, the institution was one of those that was more enlightened ones for the treatment of people who were mentally disturbed. However, the doctors felt that the dungeon was really the only place for people who were hopelessly insane. And in little Annie's case, they saw no hope for her, so they put her in the dungeon of Tewksbury in Asylum 8 there. In that dungeon, she was sent to live, or rather die, in a very small cage that they had put her in. There was very little light, (laughs) and there was less hope as well. About the time that that little Annie was sent there into the dungeon, there was an elderly nurse who was preparing to retire. And she decided that she was going to start taking her lunch downstairs in the dungeon and to eat with little Annie outside the cage, of course. She was constantly looking for ways to hopefully communicate some kind of love and compassion to the to this young girl. But in many ways, little Annie was kind of like a caged animal. I mean, on occasion, she would violently attack anybody who came into her cage. But there were other times that she simply ignored them as if she didn't even know they were there. One day, the nurse brought some brownies with her into the dungeon. But little Annie gave her no indication that she even recognized that she was there that day. So she had some left over, and she sat them by the cage, and she left. And when she came back, they were gone. So on Thursdays, when she would come, she would stop down in the dungeon, and she would drop off some little brownies and leave them. And when she would come back, they would be gone. Over the course of time, something began to change. They determined that Annie was not hopelessly insane, and they moved her back upstairs into general population. Finally, the day came when hopeless Annie was told that she could return home. But little Annie didn't want to leave. You see, her time there had had such an impact on her life that she felt that she needed to stay so she might be able to help the other patients by bringing them encouragement and hope just as this elderly nurse had done for her. Many years later, Queen Victoria, while pinning England's highest award on a foreigner, said to Helen Keller, how do you account for your remarkable accomplishments in life? And how do you explain the fact that even though you were both blind and deaf, you were able to accomplish so much more? Without a moment's hesitation, Helen Keller said that had it not been for Anne Sullivan, little Annie, that that hopeless little girl who was healed and stayed to help others, the name of Helen Keller would never have been known. That's not often mentioned, but Helen Keller was normal. She was a very healthy baby before some mysterious disease she contracted. It left her helpless, blind, and deaf. But Ann Sullivan saw Helen Keller as one of God's very special people, and she treated her as she saw her, as someone with hope. 
She loved her, she disciplined her, she played with her, she prayed for her, she pushed her, and she worked with her until finally a flickering candle was lit within that life of Helen Keller. Helen Keller influenced millions of people after her own life was touched by little Annie. And she turned into be someone who loved and encouraged so many other people because Ann Sullivan was loved by an elderly nurse who let her light shine in the darkness of that dungeon. See, the love and encouragement that you and I have that we give to other people can be a domino effect. My question is this. Are you letting your light shine? Or are you hiding it under a bushel? Is your character salty enough that you are going to impact this world in a way that's going to change it for something that's good? Are you making a difference in the lives of people around you so that they will come to know Christ? If not, man, you still have time. You still have time. Let your light shine. Be the salt of this earth. Let's pray.